0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Thank you so much, Crystal. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Living with Metastatic Breast Cancer. And today's program is being offered during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we realize that all of you on this call today are living with metastatic breast cancer and that we want to be sure to address many of your concerns and issues. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer care many other cancer organizations as well as many breast cancer organizations and many breast cancer organizations that address metastatic breast cancer as well. Now on today's program we have over 527 participants on the call today so there are a lot of you on the call today and although you can't see each other you're from all over the United States from all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Ireland, Tehran, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it is a bit of a global call as well, and we're delighted to have um, so many of you on the call today. And today's program has been made possible uh, by AbbVie, Cascadian Therapeutics, iSci, Inc., and Syndax Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today as well as their collaboration in making today's program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and um, our first speaker is uh, Dr. Rosa Grana. Dr. Graner is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Graner is going to be addressing an overview of metastatic breast cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Groner.
2: Thank you, Carolyn, for inviting me today. In the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to be talking about metastatic breast cancer, giving you a, a general overview, talk about current standards of care, and some of the new treatment approaches. Metastatic breast cancer represents a revisiting of disease for about 70 to 80% of patients. These are patients that have been previously treated for breast cancer, have a preexisting cancer team, and now develop metastatic disease. The goals of care are very different in early-stage disease versus recurrence uh, or metastatic disease. In the early-stage setting, our focus is improving survival and we're much more likely to accept toxicity, whereas in metastatic disease, we're focusing on control of disease, paying particular attention to toxicity, prolonging life, maintaining quality of life. We tend to think of metastatic disease as highly treatable but chronic, generally thought of as incurable chronic disease. It's critical to understand in metastatic disease the patient's priorities and goals of care, along with understanding their disease process. So uh, the discussion between the patient and the team is very important. Metastatic disease often presents with symptoms or findings on exam that lead to imaging and the diagnosis. It has not been demonstrated to have usefulness to serial scans or tumor markers in early-stage breast cancer to find this metastatic disease. The prognosis in metastatic disease depends on several things. It depends on the sites of recurrence. We know that skin and lymph nodes do very well. Pleura and bone do very well. Lung, liver, not nearly as well. It also depends on time from the diagnosis of original breast cancer to recurrence, but in particular, the type of tumor that we're dealing with. And this comes back to some old markers that you heard about in early stage disease, the estrogen receptor, the her 2 receptor, the progesterone receptor. It is very important at the time of development of metastatic disease that a repeat biopsy be done if possible, as retesting for those markers helps us to decide what therapies we're going to be proceeding with. Uh, There are some new markers that some people try to obtain on the repeat biopsy, uh, microsatellite instability, androgen receptor testing. So there are some additional studies that can be done, but the mainstay in terms of helping us plan treatment are the first three, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-NU. The current selection of therapy is really based on the sites of disease. It dictates our urgency for treatment, and it also depends on the previous therapy the patient may have had. Has the patient had adriamycin and a taxane or not? What pre-existing toxicity have they had? Do they have neuropathy from their prior chemotherapy? Do they have cardiomyopathy? And it also depends on the estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 new status, and also the patient's wishes. Does the patient wish to get weekly treatment, or do they want to get treatment every three weeks? Do they want to get oral or IV? Are they willing to accept hair loss, or is that a deal breaker for that patient? So again, a lot goes into planning the appropriate treatment for a patient. The current standard therapies revolve around three disease groups, hormone receptor positive disease, HER2-new positive disease, and triple negative disease. And then there's a lot of other work being done to look at other subgroups, patients that have mutations in BRCA1 and 2, and maybe targeting therapy to them. Let's begin by talking about cancer that is estrogen receptor positive. Then we'll talk about the HER2 new positive, and uh, at last, the triple negative. The estrogen receptor positive patient population. Their management is uh, very often geared towards hormonal agents. Unless they have very significant disease in the lung or liver, what some people call visceral crisis, we will begin with hormonal therapy and we'll choose the hormonal agent that the patient has not previously seen. It's really important if a woman is premenopausal that we try to make her postmenopausal with either drug therapy or uh, removal or management of the ovaries. And the mainstays of our hormonal agents include drugs such as anastrozole, letrozole, uh, faslodex, or fulvestrant is very active. So we have a whole variety of hormonal agents that can be used. What we have seen, very interestingly, is that we now have agents that we can add to our hormonal agents that make the hormonal agents behave better and last longer, there's a group of compounds called the cd 46 inhibitors. Uh, most of you have heard of three. Uh, two have been on the market a bit. A new one just came on the market this week. Palbocyclib is otherwise known as Ibrant. Ribocyclib is known as Kiscali. And abemocyclib, uh, Verzeno, uh, just got FDA approval this week. Those three agents are, again, cd 46 inhibitors. They're used along with hormonal therapy, And they've been shown to improve uh, the outcome for women with metastatic disease by almost doubling the duration of response. We're seeing women that would have required a change in treatment uh, in about 10 months now going 20 months or longer before needing to consider change in treatment. So these are very dramatic uh, and impactful drugs for women with metastatic disease. Another group of compounds that have been added to hormonal agents are known as mTOR inhibitors. Affinitor is such a drug, or everolimus. That agent also, when added to exemestane or now to fulvestrand, has been shown to double the duration of benefit that you get with a hormonal agent. So in today's world, uh, most women, are, uh, when they're diagnosed with metastatic disease, will be treated with a combination of hormone and adjuncts, such as a cd 46 or an mTOR inhibitor, There are older patients or more frail patients where we won't want to use that combination and we'll stick just with the hormonal agent. There's a lot of work looking at newer uh, drugs that may help the hormonal agents work better, help overcome resistance, and a lot of research is being done in that area. Now let's move to the HER2-new-positive population. Again, when deciding which agents to use in a patient that's her 2 new positive, it's particularly important to get a sense of the severity of their disease. If it's disease that's not life-threatening, that's uh, involving lymph nodes or bone, uh, those are going to be approached differently than the patients who may have liver or lung, and the choices of drugs are going to be different. In her 2 new positive disease, we have many different options. In some cases, we'll use a hormone with Herceptin and Pertusumab or Progetta if the cancer is estrogen receptor positive, and there's data suggesting very good activity. If a patient, on the other hand, has significant lung or liver disease, we may begin with chemotherapy for uh, six cycles or eight cycles and then transition them to the hormone along with Herceptin and Progetta. If the patient is estrogen receptor negative, in those patients, hormones don't work, so we will use chemotherapy and then eventually transition them away from chemotherapy and often maintain those patients on just Herceptin and Progetta. But in the HER2-new positive population, we have some new drugs. Uh, CADZila or TDM1 is a very exciting drug. It's a chemo conjugate, so it's a conjugate between Herceptin and a chemotherapeutic agent. It's very uh, tolerable in terms of uh, uh, toxicity and very effective. We have agents that are oral. Tykerb is one that's been on the market for some time. Uh, we have a variety of chemotherapy agents that work very well with Herceptin, and we have a drug that's just been approved in early stage disease, Neratinib, uh, that again may play itself out in the metastatic setting. So clearly, women with HER2 new positive disease have very long courses of disease have many drugs that are available to them, and now there's a lot of research uh, even identifying newer drugs and vaccines targeting the HER2-new pathway. So it's a particularly a good time uh, in this disease setting with research. Finally, triple negative disease. Triple negative disease is disease that is estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-new negative, so we don't have the hormonal options and we don't have the HER2-new targeted options, The mainstay for these patients tends to be chemotherapy. We have a lot of agents that have very good activity in this setting, the platinum compounds, gemcitabine, and a variety of other agents that are active. Typically, these are treated with single-agent chemotherapy, although some people will use combinations if the disease is more serious. And this is a disease where clinical trials are actively being done, combining immune-modulating drugs with chemotherapy, and some novel agents with chemotherapy. So much more is going to be uh, understood about these dro- these uh, uh, cancers in the future. Some of you have heard about some of the pd one pdl one immune therapy uh, drugs. Uh, these are very interesting compounds and are being looked at in triple negative disease, uh, often alone or in combination with other compounds, and a lot of work is being done in that setting. What other interesting uh things are out there? I think one of the interesting concepts is the c- woman who has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation because we know that those uh individuals have abnormal DNA repair and there are a group of compounds called PARP inhibitors that may be particularly active in that setting. Uh one of these agents, olaparib uh, has been approved for a mutation positive ovarian cancer. And there's now data supporting its use in metastatic breast cancer. So again, if you happen to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, this is something that may be used as part of your treatment planning. So in conclusion, I think uh, we are living in a particularly uh, interesting time in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Tremendous amount of research is going on in this field, and I do believe that we are making a difference in metastatic disease and the lessons we're learning here will be moved to early stage breast cancer, uh, in the future. Uh, thank you Carolyn and I'm gonna turn this back to you. Oh, thank you so much.
1: Dr. Grona, that was an outstanding presentation. Thank you. I know there will be lots of questions during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Ingrid Meyer. Dr. Meyer is Associate Professor of Medicine, Leader of Breast Cancer Program, Director, Clinical Core Breast Cancer Program, Chair, Data Safety and Monitoring Committee, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. And Dr. Meyer is going to be addressing the role of diagnostic testing and technologies, clinical trials, how research may improve your care, and side effect and pain management.
3: It's really my great pleasure now to turn this over to Dr. Meyer. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's such a pleasure to um, discuss these three topics today. Um, I'm going to focus more on the second topic um, for a little while longer because that's close and dear to me, Uh, but let's start by talking a little bit about diagnostic testing and technologies. So, a lot of technological advances uh, advances have been seen lately in breast cancer, and the essentially all these improved technologies and diagnostic procedures have helped tremendously individualise diagnostic evaluation treatment by improving how well um we address breast cancer and you know minimising side effects minimising like issues related to treatment by helping diagnose cancer at an earlier stage. So to give you some examples of, of um, some of the new technologies that came over the past years, first we'll start with some superior imaging techniques. Uh, for early breast cancer, obviously most of you are familiar with digital mammography, but lately we've seen things like tomosynthesis, which is kind of like a fancier mammography, almost like a 3D mammography, that allows us to see things much better in breasts that are dense. Um, we have now... Um, abundantly used MRIs to look at breasts, especially for people with BRCA1 or 2 mutations or at very high overall lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. There has been another imaging technique that has successfully detected breast cancer early. So all this this better detection in the early setting obviously has allowed us to diagnose cancers um, at a stage where the treatment is a lot less complicated. So, to give you an example, if you diagnose somebody with an estrogen-positive cancer at a stage one where the tumor is small and the lymph nodes are not involved, typically the use of hormone blockers is really the only systemic treatment that the woman may need. Whereas somebody that has not had a cancer diagnosed early and presents with a very large tumor, several lymph node involvement and whatnot their systemic treatment may become more complicated uh, with the addition of chemotherapy. So even though both women may be equally curable, obviously the second person has had a lot more trouble getting there because of the addition of chemotherapy, which is a lot more toxic than just hormone blockers alone. Other things that that have uh, played a role uh, in uh, new diagnostic techniques and whatnot is the event of sentinel lymph node biopsy, which actually has been around for quite some time. But other things that we can do during surgery now have been um, becoming a lot more popular, such as intraoperative radiation, where you know you can get all your local regional control like in a one-and-done procedure, like both surgery and radiation all at the same time. So patients don't have to come back and do radiation for an extensive period of time. They can range anywhere between three to six weeks to... Um, you know, complete their local regional control. So that that really reduces treatment time and morbidity associated with local regional treatments, and is very convenient for patients with early stage breast cancer. Um, other three dimensional imaging allows us to assess margins uh, of the cancer a lot better at the time of surgery, so preventing patients from having to go back and having a second surgical procedure. Um, Nowadays, we're using a lot of genomic classifications to look at breast cancers and figure out if the different subtypes have different behaviors and treatment implications. So to use examples of certain um, signatures that are out there, like tests like recurrence score or oncotype DX or print, all those help us figure out if the risk of recurrence is higher or lower and help us tailor treatment for patients. So for people with metastatic disease, we can do genetic fingerprints of the tumor uh, with tests like Garden Health or Foundation One that help us detect genomic alterations of a given cancer that may help us figure out if certain drugs in clinical trials or even drugs that are already approved are a better fit for uh, the treatment of those patients. So that way we can, again, individualize treatment um, quite impressively and hopefully make outcomes better in the long run. So speaking of clinical trials, this is a good segue um, to talk about what clinical trials are and, and what is their role in the care of breast cancer in general. So clinical trials are research studies that are done um, that ultimately the main goal of that is to evaluate a new cancer treatment. So, So finding better ways to treat cancer and help cancer patients ultimately is what results from several different types of clinical trials. They play definitely a key role in fighting cancer, um, because over time, all these this advances that we have, not just in diagnosis, treatment, and care of patients with cancer, have occurred because of these clinical trials. We wouldn't be where we are today without clinical trials. So the search for new uh, treatment and diagnosis usually begins in the laboratory. Where uh, there's testing of new drugs, new agents or new procedures, typically in cells and animals, and then we graduate that, that that those those drugs or procedures that seem promising into clinical trials that are then applied to human beings so So clinical trial typically is the final stage of this very long and careful cancer research process. There are three types of clinical trials, what we call phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. Phase one clinical trials are the ones that usually look at a very new drug, a brand new drug that just finished testing in the laboratory, and we don't know much yet about the drug in terms of side effects or how it works against cancer. We know it's a good drug against cancer in animals and cell lines. But in humans, we actually don't know. And that's what phase one trials really try to answer. Those are typically small trials that that everybody participating in a phase one trial is guaranteed to get the new drug. But there's usually testing of different doses of the drug to see which dose is more tolerable and more active against different types of cancers. So these trials are carried out until a maximum tolerated dose of a given drug is figured out and at that point, that drug may graduate to what we call a phase two clinical trial. A phase two clinical trial is the one that tests how well a drug works in a given cancer. Um, usually, we look at things like how well the the control of the growth of of the cancer is in in humans they um, These clinical trials typically are guaranteed to offer the drug to every participant. And most of the phase two clinical trials usually involve about a few um, dozens or a few hundred patients um, and and we pretty much have a sense if the drug is helpful or not helpful in a given disease. The Phase three clinical trials is really the last step before a drug may get approval um, These clinical trials typically um, they even though they're they're lengthy because they usually gather a lot of people within this these trials, like usually typical, in several several hundreds or thousands of patients. Like in these trials, we compare the new treatment with what's perceived to be the best standard of care treatment out there. Sometimes these trials will be something along the line of standard of care treatment plus minus the new drug or the new procedure. Sometimes it's going to be the standard of care treatment versus the new drug. Once a, clinical, a Phase three clinical trial typically compares the standard of care treatment with and without the new drug, there's something that, that we usually give along with the standard of care treatment that's called a placebo pill, which is a lookalike pill that or, or an infusion that may look very similar to what the new drug being tested is, but it doesn't have any real activity. And the reason that's necessary is because we really want to have as much of an unbiased approach as possible to what the new drug can add to what the standard of care is. A common misconception is that people don't want to be in a placebo trial because they think they're not going to get anything, and that's not true. I mean, they get, at minimum, the standard of care. So if they don't participate in the clinical trial, they still are going to get the standard of care. So there's really, really no downside in getting a placebo. People still get the standard of care treatment, but they may or may not get the investigational drug along with it. So phase three clinical trials are very important for us to have like a very definitive answer if that new procedure, drug, or intervention is truly helpful and should become the new standard of care moving forward. For a given patient, there are several reasons why a patient may choose to take part in a clinical trial. Um, Participation in this can allow early access to new technologies or new drugs, um, there's a chance that the new drug that that patient is being exposed to is indeed more effective, so people are really getting the more effective treatment ahead of time, and that, that may be very transformative in the patient's life. Um, not only they are helping their own disease, but they also are helping scientists understand better how to treat breast cancer, and overall a lot of other women uh, like are being helped in the future by that knowledge, in the past, a lot of the clinical trials were seen as the last resort for people with, with no other treatment choices, and often enough we hear the term, I don't want to be a guinea pig, and that's definitely no longer the case. Today, a lot of patients with common cancers, including breast cancer, actually choose to be in a clinical trial as their very first treatment Um sometimes even in their early setting, because they realize that being in a clinical trial gives them the opportunity to get something that's potentially better than what we have out there right now. So so no matter which treatment we use, all patients in the clinical trial are always followed very carefully by their doctors and their nurses. Um, institutions that have very active research programs are often much more likely to follow clinical guidelines and may be faster to uptake some of these new new findings into into practice. So all in all, being in a clinical trial really assures people that they're going to get the best possible care, that they can get either as a standard care or potentially getting something that could be even better than the standard of care. So all in all, I always encourage my patients to explore clinical trials because it definitely opens more doors, more opportunities for treatment, and it may indeed translate into a longer life for people with metastatic disease and even people with early disease. The last part of my talk is gonna um, be um, about side effects and some pain management in breast cancer, and that's a very broad topic, so I'm just gonna bring a few um, pearls in and um, discuss the, the main treatment goals that we have for breast cancer, particularly metastatic breast cancer, where symptom control is a very important part of um, our our care. So overall, when we're dealing with metastatic breast cancer, there are three important values that we always have to take into consideration equally. One is increasing overall survival. Obviously, a big goal of what we want to do with treatment is have people live longer, But as we do that, we also want to make sure that we're addressing palliation of any possible symptoms that are related to either the disease itself or the treatment. And while we do all that, we also want to make sure that people are having a good quality of life. And the reason that's very important is because we can't put an expiration date on people. So so we don't know how long a person is going to live. So whatever time that person has, it has to be well spent. So the choices we make for treatment always have to be very smart and take into consideration how well the treatment works against the cancer, how are we palliating symptoms, and how are we giving people good quality of life. So during a breast cancer treatment journey, pain can be a common occurrence, um, sometimes in the early setting. Um, Typically there the pain is associated with, let's say, surgical complications, so not often, not uncommonly, somebody who has a mastectomy and a lymph node dissection, whatnot, has a lot of scar tissue, and that can hurt down the line. Usually, a breast lump is typically not painful, but that's also not a rule. I mean, it's you know, as, as a rule of thumb, it's not painful, but but just because it hurts, it doesn't mean it's not cancer. So sometimes that can happen. But pain is obviously much more of a common issue in people that have. Metastatic disease, where sometimes cancer can go into the bones and cause bone pain, or or you know it can be impinging on some nerves and causing nerve pain. And clearly, pain is uh, a very important symptom that impacts quality of life in a very negative way. And ultimately, that does interfere with our ability to fight the disease in a more effective way because patients are not as engaged, they're typically depressed, and and not as motivated to continue treatment if they're suffering. So throughout breast cancer treatment, um, I think it's very important to engage a multidisciplinary team to take care of symptoms in general. So an oncologist may be very comfortable with pain management, but in big institutions, often enough, we usually engage a pain management team, which sometimes can do a much better job than an oncologist can because that's all they do in being very proactive to work and manage and control pain. So patients can actually focus on their treatment, uh, along with their oncologist, there are several pain management approaches that we we usually take advantage of for um, pain. The most well-known one and the most common one are the ones through medications um, that can range anywhere from simple anti-inflammatory drugs that can be bought over the counter all the way to medications that we call narcotics or opioids, things like morphine or dilaudid. Those are common things that we typically engage with people with more severe pain. Some of these prescription drugs have side effects of their own, and not uncommonly we have to deal with things like nausea, vomiting, itching, constipation, drowsiness, and whatnot. And there's an art of dealing with that, too, because obviously we don't want to treat one problem but introduce like five different ones. So so a, a, a a very quick and, and careful like managing of dosage, the time the medication is taken, making sure the patient is well hydrated, um, make a difference in how people actually tolerate a lot of the side effects. So having a very multidisciplinary and active team in managing pain and symptoms is important because a lot of these uh, side effects can be anticipated and minimized by engaging other types of supportive medications early on. Other ways to control pain involve what we call neuropathic pain control. Neuropathic refers to pain related to nerve damage, and that's not an uncommon thing with either cancers that are impinging on nerves or treatments that may cause nerve damage as a side effect. So certain chemotherapies are notorious for doing that, where people have numbness and tingling and sometimes pain that can happen in their feet, their hands, and in other parts of the body. And those types of pains, they actually don't respond well to over-the-counter medications or even narcotics or opioids. And sometimes either medications that are specific for pain control, for instance, something like gabapentin or Lyrica or whatnot, are more suitable to treat that type of pain, Sometimes we can uh, get a hold of nerve injections that can be done by specialized pain care teams, or people can have implanted pain devices or nerve stimulation devices that can also help with this type of pain. So there's a plethora of possibilities, and and that's why, again, having a pain management team uh, being a part of care uh, comes in handy because they're much more knowledgeable about those those, um, types of pain control that may not necessarily resort to medications. And finally we also resort to things like radiation. Sometimes when you have cancer that is in the bone and is eating away that bone and causing a lot of local inflammation, radiating radiating that area can actually provide very good pain control without again people having to take medications that will cause side effects of their own. Or if people have something like a pleural effusion, like water in the lungs, Sometimes taking the water out will help them breathe better and will help the pain associated with that get better as well. So, ultimately, I think people have to realize that pain symptoms is a very unique experience. And pain treatment has to be a very tailored and very individualized care. Um Whatever type of pain one experiences, obviously we want to treat it early. We want to be consistent, and as I said, I can't emphasize enough how important having a multidisciplinary team is in treatment of pain and symptoms. With that, I'd like to thank Caroline again for the invitation, and I'm open to receive any questions at the end of the talks. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Meyer. That was really outstanding and really really extraordinary, and I'm, I know there will be questions during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Actually, questions are starting to come in already, and we haven't even explained to people how to ask the questions, so we will do that in a little while when we finish all the presentations. And our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, Director, Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Shapiro is going to be addressing quality of life concerns, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and tips on communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shapiro.
4: Thank you, Carolyn, uh, for inviting me today. So let me talk to you and as if you were my best friend, and tell you what I would tell a good friend who's uh, just facing a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. First of all, the issue of quality of life as it applies to an individual is really what is what is what what is the important to each person. So I would tell my friend what it matters most to you. And then you need to think about your priorities, concerns, and in terms of communicating with a healthcare team, the most valuable advice I would give a friend and I hope to you all is to be clear, to be direct, to be frank, and to... Find a way of really uh, creating some good, solid, trusting relationships with members of the healthcare team and present to them very clearly what matters to you. This may change over time. Some people are ready to have deep conversations from the first time they hear they have metastatic breast cancer, and they really want to know what lies ahead, and they want to take as much control as they can of their lives. And sometimes what that means really is have an idea of what the lineup of treatments are. Some people are not quite ready to hear that, or the readiness changes over time. What's important, I think, is first to come to term with what that diagnosis means. Uh, my colleagues before have addressed the fact that metastatic breast cancer is a lifelong illness, um, and that there will always be needs for treatment. Perhaps the treatments will be continuous. Perhaps the treatments will not be continuous. But the important thing to begin to accept and wrap one's head around is the fact that there will be one treatment after another. And even the best treatments, the ones that produce very good responses, often don't last forever. In other words, cancers typically find ways of growing through, after and through the uh, Treatments, So there will need to be a series of successive treatments, and being ready for that may be very helpful. The other thing that's very important is to place family and caregivers' needs also at the front of the conversation. It's important to have advice about how to talk to kids. About um, living with metastatic breast cancer and not keep this a family secret, it's important to find ways of finding support for oneself and also for family caregivers and spouses, perhaps parents or siblings, or even a a good friend who really um, feels um, that they are very involved and wants to help. So support groups can be incredibly helpful, and I know we're going to hear a little bit more about that. Sometimes individual therapy and counseling is also necessary. This may not be something that's required for the long haul, but maybe at certain points where there are transitions, where things change, where there's new information so living with metastatic breast cancer presents many challenges in all existential domains. It may affect you know, how much time you have to go to work, what kind of work you do, um, how much time you want to invest in your treatment, and also, um, let's be perfectly frank, may also affect the family budget. So all of these things may affect quality of life. Uh, quality of life has many different domains. One is a physical domain that we often think about, and we are all uh, now getting used to talking about physical symptoms, often that result as uh, from toxic side effects of the. Great drugs we have. So these are things like fatigue or hair loss or uh, nausea or neuropathies. Um, Those are some of the most common ones. But there also are other quality of life concerns, and that has to do with whether or not one can perform important life functions and roles, such as uh, social roles as a spouse, as a mother, as a daughter, and also affects one's productivity and one's professional life. In fact, there may also be very deep emotional and existential concerns because one is living with a a, illness that may shorten one's life. And I have um, had the privilege to talk to so many patients over the years and also to friends who've lived with this illness, so I understand that the way one deals with it uh, can be very different. There are many different ways of coping. The important thing is to make sure that you are coping and that if you're not, that you ask for help because there is help uh, among the professional team. Talking about prognosis may be very important, and doctors these days really do want to have those conversations as early as possible so that everybody can align their expectations. And then together, choose wisely what the treatments should look like. Uh, Some patients, for instance, uh, may want want the best possible result, and that's all they're thinking about. But there may be um, treatments that yield similar results, but one may require more time at the clinic or at the hospital, and another may just require taking some medications by mouth and may provide more freedom. All of these things are important. As we think about some of these new combination therapies, especially some of these oral anti-cancer therapies that uh, my colleague Dr. Grana talked about, uh, for instance, for women living with hormonally sensitive metastatic breast cancer, the way we treat this these days is is typically for as long as possible we treat with hormonal agents. And we use a combination now of drugs. We use drugs such as these CDK4-6 inhibitors that uh, restore or enhance hormonal sensitivity when tumors sometimes become resistant, leading to far better results. But they're associated with very large price tags. And because these are oral drugs, often this has to come from um, um, insurance and out-of-pocket costs, so even the copays can reach into the thousands of dollars a month. These are really important concerns and may limit, um, you know, even access to, to some of these treatments that really um, are giving such good results. It's important to talk about this. There may be a financial counselor. There may be a specialty pharmacist who can help, and um, there may be sources of uh, support and assistance. For patients who are looking for innovation, it's important also to make sure that there is a way that they or you understand some of the options. So clinical trials, one way to think about them, for instance, is a way of creating more options for treatment. And these days, most patients who have any kind of metastatic cancer, and certainly breast cancer, are encouraged to have their tumors tested to see if the if it's possible to identify what is making those cancer cells grow. That's called the drivers of growth. And often, as a result of that, some mutations are identified in the genes. These may not be g- uh, mutations that are passed on from generation to generation, the way we think about the genetic mutations such as BRCA genes, these may be changes within the tumor, but what that information helps us do is to try to match that to perhaps existing new drugs that are being tested through clinical trials, and that's one way of increasing the options available for patients. Sometimes it's hard to understand what the researchers and the oncologists are really saying when they're talking about all this. So it's really important to ask questions, and questions about, you know, what other options you may have. And again, the thing to keep in mind is that the first treatment that's given for metastatic breast cancer may work for a a while. That could be months or years. But after that, there will be a need for more treatments. So finding experts that you can work with who really are thinking about not just the present for you, but what lies ahead is important and may help create more options. So um, as a summary now, since I know that we have uh, uh, more ground to cover and we want to take questions, I would say this. The important thing is, first of all, to accept and understand what a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer means. When you are ready to try to um, really ask some questions about what's likely to happen next, to find mechanisms for feeling supported, and to extend that support to family caregivers and to also get advice on how best to communicate with kids. If you have kids living at home and you're living with metastatic breast cancer, think about short-term, think about long-term, think about what getting treatment means to you, and be very clear, as clear as you possibly can, and have fluid lines of communication open with different members of your oncology team to make sure that you're getting the treatment that best matches what you need at that time and that you have the support and guidance that you need. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm gonna turn it over to you now.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shapira. That was wonderful. Very outstanding and And really a lot of very important thoughts and and concepts for people to think about in terms of what quality of life means, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Stacey Lewis. Ms. Lewis is an oncology social worker. She is Cancer Care's Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Lewis.
5: Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, I, as well, am very happy to be part of this program today. So since we've been talking a lot about managing care and quality of life, I just wanted to speak briefly about the importance of creating your support network as part of your care team and the ways that Cancer Care can be a part of that network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone impacted by cancer. Our programs include things like individual counseling, face-to-face in our New York City area, as well as over the telephone nationwide, support groups, which we provide face-to-face in our New York area, as well as over the telephone and online nationally and internationally, educational programs, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial assistance services are provided by licensed, master's-level oncology social workers, and all of those services are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in the ways that a diagnosis of cancer impacts not just the individual, but also his and her family and friends. We're trained to help individuals and their support networks tackle the problems that accompany this disease, like the financial demands, physical changes, social and psychological impact and adjustments. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of the areas that I mentioned are an important part of this process. And as we've talked about, cancer impacts not just you, but also your family and support network. Asking for help, whether you're a patient in treatment, a caregiver, or a loved one, by joining a support group or by seeking counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to go through this alone. Joining a support group can be a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations and are likely experiencing similar issues. Individual counseling can provide you a space that is just yours to verbalize any of your concerns and navigate some of these issues that I've mentioned. Connections in these areas can help lessen the isolation that many individuals and their loved ones experience in this process. And feeling well emotionally can help you feel better prepared to deal with your diagnosis and the treatment. I did want to mention that at this time, Cancer Care is offering a dedicated metastatic breast cancer online support group that is continuing to accept new members. And as I mentioned earlier, we also have a variety of online groups for the earlier stage breast cancers, as well as groups for caregivers and loved ones. If you're interested in any of Cancer Care's services, please feel free to call our hope line at 800 813 You can also visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You can find information on any of the support uh, services that I mentioned, as well as some additional information on coping with your diagnosis and treatment. Our website, you can also register for future workshops like this one and join those online support groups that I mentioned. So in closing, we've learned a lot from today's program, and it's certainly a lot of information to digest. Our social workers here can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And if you have any questions about today's workshops or any of the free support services that I mentioned, please do feel free to contact us. And in closing, I would just want to say please remember that you're not alone. Cancer care services are here to help you. And thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to speak today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lewis. That was outstanding as well, and, and lots of wonderful resources for everyone on the call as well. So we now do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and um, she will explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I will definitely provide you with information about how to get your questions answered that we don't get to, but let's see how many we can take for now. Um, Crystal?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Patrice S. Your line is open. Hi. um,
1: I had a question for... uh, it was uh, Dr. Shapira and you had mentioned um, you had mentioned something about having tumors tested to see what's driving them can you talk a little bit more about that sure um
4: so um there are mo- most of the cancer centers uh, routinely now offer this service to patients coming in for consultations with metastatic breast cancer, Um, and uh, there are different assays available. Some are done within, you know, the big academic centers. Some are sent out to companies. uh, One that has a lot of name recognition is uh, Foundation Medicine. And uh, so um, if there is a, a biopsy that's been done at the time of diagnosis of metastatic disease, it's best to send that sometimes the original tumor is studied, but what they do is basically try to identify if there are any mutations in genes um, that are thought to be again driving the growth of the cancer and then there are now a series of drug trials um, that are targeting some of these uh, drivers of growth, so um for some. Uh, patients, there may be options, for instance, of being on a clinical trial that's testing drugs that are specifically designed to address the drivers of growth of, that are identified in their tumors. This is sort of part of a of a conversation that you need to have with um with an oncologist who um has access to some of these this research. But this is one way of thinking about treating metastatic breast cancer that um is more customized and takes into consideration some of the information um from the tumor itself in order to uh put together a treatment plan.
1: Excellent, thank you. And and Doctor Matt Meyer, do you wish to add anything as well?
3: no I, I i think this is actually pretty well covered i mean it's again it underscores the, the importance of um you know having access to clinical trials because most of this this testing is really gonna be applicable in that setting um mean you know, a lot of the mutations we find in the tumor or whatnot are not necessarily mutations that are tackled by current drugs that are standard of care in this day and age so so again, I want to put another plug in for clinical trials in that regard. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Um, and uh, another question to you, uh, Dr. Meyer, um, from one of our online participants. Um, I have heard that all, of all the cancers, breast cancer is the sneakiest as it can recur after many years in remission. For some other cancers, after five years, one is considered cure. Is this true? Um, if you could address this, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Meyer, in a general way, and then, of course, we would like our participants to go back to the sure. treating Healthcare team. Sure.
3: Um, So, in general, that is actually true. Um, In general, cancers that are potentially slow-growing are cancers that tend to be a little bit more immune to chemotherapy, and therefore they don't die uh, with systemic treatment. So they may linger and stay kind of like asleep for many, many years and for no particular reason wake up 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And a lot of estrogen-positive cancers that are low-grade tend to behave like that, where hormone blockers are great medications to prevent recurrence, but they don't kill the cancer. And therefore, somebody with an estrogen-positive tumor can indeed have a recurrence many years down the road. Now, for people that are diagnosed later in life, sometimes they end up dying of old age before they can have a recurrence. But obviously they can't still die with viable cancer cells in their body and not even know about it. For cancers that are high risk and very aggressive in their behavior, a recurrence usually happens early, usually happens within the first five years of that cancer diagnosis. And that's why cancers such as, let's say, triple negative tumors or some HER2 positive tumors, if they don't recur within the first five years, we could potentially say that that patient is cured because with such an aggressive cancer, we would have expected a recurrence to occur early. So the five-year timeline definitely applies to cancers in general that are high-grade, aggressive, fast-growing, and the quote-unquote no expiration date is more of a thing for cancers that are estrogen-positive, slow-growing, low-grade, and so forth.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And there is a, a bit of a question that's uh, a, a follow-up a bit to that one. Is um, What annual test should a breast cancer survivor have? With Dr. Meyer, if you could address that as well.
3: I'm, I'm sorry. Can you ask the question again?
1: Oh, so, well, I'm sorry, yes. What annual test should a breast cancer survivor have?
3: So, fortunately, it's actually not very complicated. Um, for people that have not had um, all their breasts removed, a lot of patients nowadays actually Um, choose to have bilateral mastectomies. Um, In those patients, once they finish their treatment in the early setting, honestly, um, biannual visits to the uh, the cancer doctor with simple blood tests to make sure their liver and kidneys are working okay, uh, have adequate levels of vitamin D, and have a good history taking where they make sure that all their symptoms are addressed are really pretty much all they need to do. For for breast cancer patients that still have their breasts, um, an annual mammogram should be added to um, the test that that people need to have. Before, we used to do mammograms every six months for the first two years post-diagnosis, and that is no longer necessary. There's actually now information showing that that really does not bring any additional benefit or any earlier diagnosis of a possible local regional recurrence. So actually, annual Breast imaging is all that we recommend In terms of breast imaging With mammograms, um, patients with Breast cancer no longer have screening Mammograms, they have what we call Diagnostic mammograms, which Is a little bit of a fancier test uh, A little bit more compression of the breast And better imaging Just because of their history of of Breast cancer But essentially, breast imaging once a year uh, For patients taking hormone blockers um, A bone density scan every two years Is also advisable Um, but at least by annual visits with some simple blood work and and good history and physical exam with a medical oncologist is really sufficient as far as monitoring um, after early breast cancer.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have a question for Dr. Shapira. Um, I have bone mats mainly in the ball of the femur and pelvis. I've had some radiation to ease pain. Is there a limit to how much radiation I can have My radiologist has offered another dose, but I turned it down, and what would be another option for my oncologist to offer me diagnosed breast cancer stage 4, July 2016? So, again, I'm going to ask Dr. Shapiro to address your question in a general way, and then, of course, we hope you'll take that information back to treating healthcare team and come up with a plan that really works well for you. But Dr. Shapiro, if you could start with addressing this.
4: Yes, so there are different ways of treating that. One is as you say with radiation, another is with drugs such as bisphosphonates that help fortify the bone and get rid even of cancer cells inside the bone, and then with some treatment uh directed to the biology of the cancer. So if it's hormonally sensitive cancer, it would be some anti-estrogen therapy, and uh, that was covered lovely in a lovely way by very thoroughly by Dr. Grana, which is typically hormonal therapy plus an adjuvant these days. Um, in terms of the total radiation dose, that is really a very specific question that can't be answered in a general way. So you need to discuss with a radiation oncologist why they think you can get more and then think about perhaps whether or not you want to go to the full dose now or reserve some for the future. The concern is always that if you exceed the amount, the total amount that's tolerated by the tissue, that you can cause damage. And it, the damage depends on the area, exact area of the body that is radiated. So if you radiate for instance the bowel too much you can cause some bowel problems. If you if you radiate too much bone in an area where uh, perhaps in the pelvis where the blood cells are produced, it may affect the production of blood cells. So it depends very much on exactly what the area is. That's called a field. So you need to you need to get really very granular and specific with a radiation oncologist. If they think that you can safely get another dose and they think that the cancer that's the there, is sensitive to radiation, that may be a great option for you now, or as I said earlier, you may choose to reserve that little extra radiation uh, and put it in in a savings account perhaps for some time in the future. But a lot of it depends on the field and what other treatment options are available to you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question for Ms. Lewis. Um, Um, how are online support groups? How do they work? Um, uh, and um, let's see, um, are they led by a social worker or other healthcare professional? What is the focus of the support groups? Educational and emotional support versus psychotherapeutic. So, Miss Lewis, if you could just address that question. Uh, it's a really good question in a general way, and that would be helpful.
5: Sure. So I can speak to the setup of the Cancer Care Online Support groups. There's a variety of online support groups set up. So if if you're looking at something that's run by your treatment center or another organization, you would want to check with them about how they run theirs. But for the Cancer Care Online groups, it's a message board style format, which means it's not a live chat. You don't have to go on at a specific time to converse with the rest of the group. Um, These are private groups that require registration, which can be done through our website, which is cancercare.org. Once you register, you're given the private information to access the group, and then only people that are participants and registered for the group are able to see the posts and read. Um, So it is a dedicated private space that is moderated by one of our oncology social workers. Um, as, you, as your question said, um, it is different than psychotherapy. So the focus of these online groups is more um, supportive and educational, with the social workers sort of facilitating the discussion, but it's not a class or psychotherapy done online. So it's really a great space for people to uh, be amongst other women with metastatic breast cancer or men um, and really have that benefit of being amongst being able to ask your questions to people who sort of get, you know, what you're dealing with. And then the social worker is there to really facilitate um, rather than be an expert per se. Um, It's really great for people who maybe have a very busy treatment schedule and can't commit to a face-to-face group uh, or being online at a specific time. It's 24-7 access. And then you also have the safety and security of it being a private group um, just amongst the other registered members with the social worker there. Um, so if you're, you know, no matter where you are in the country um, or internationally, you can participate in our online groups.
1: I think that sort of covered
5: uh, a lot of information very quickly.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, thanks. And um, and we have one last breaking question, which I'm going to ask. um both our speakers to address I, I it's a question of what annual test should um what routine can someone address routine breast exams for healthy individuals so um dr um Meyer, do you want to start with that one
3: sure, so for healthy individuals um you know I honestly think it's a little debatable is if self breast breast exams are helpful. Um Some women have very lumpy, bumpy breasts, and um you know obviously something brewing there can be missed or confused, and we certainly don't wanna alarm people and and have them blow off something that may be hidden so so the cepex animation the obviously they don't hurt, but they either can be a source of like false security or or maybe finding too much stuff that may lead to unnecessary procedures so um I have a little bit mixed feelings about that. But definitely having at least an annual screening mammogram I think is actually very helpful. Um, I I usually like to recommend that for women um, starting at age 40. And the reason I I say that is not because I really think it makes a huge difference in quote-unquote saving lives. And, And the reason I say that is because, again, treatments today are so effective that even patients diagnosed at a later stage may do well in this day and age. But what I think mammograms really do is diagnose people at earlier stages where the treatment can be simpler, as I said before. I mean, you may not need to do as much to achieve a cure. So I think it's reasonable to do an annual screening mammogram once a year. Um, like for patients that have high risk of a lifetime development of breast cancer, meaning people with uh, genetic mutations such as BRCA1 or BRCA2, uh, obviously, there there is a role for fancier imaging screening uh, screening tests such as MRI. They can be alternated with mammograms, because obviously women like that tend to to have denser breasts and and may require a better look. And obviously, because of the higher lifetime risk of breast cancer, much more likely to find something. Um, but but essentially, I I would say that go to the doctor at least once a year. Let let either the gynecologist or or a good primary care physician examine the breasts and do an annual screening mammogram that's typically sufficient for most healthy women um, as far as screening for breast cancer.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And, uh, Dr. Shapiro, do you want to add anything to that?
4: I think she covered everything.
1: Okay. All right.
4: Well, um,
1: I actually want to thank all of our speakers. You've been extraordinary. Um, it's been an amazing call. Um, I know we could go on for many hours. We have lots more questions, so I did say I would first of all let you all know how to get your questions answered, so that's really most important at this point for all of you listening. So um, for those of you who still have questions, of course your healthcare team is a wonderful route to go. However, many of you also like to get information from credible sources that you can then take that information and or use that information to have more informed questions of your healthcare team. So we do recommend that you then contact the National Cancer Institute. They have both uh, a, a live chat feature at their website at www.cancer.gov and you know, that's their home page and it has a live chat feature where you can actually speak directly with an information specialist so that's incredibly helpful and or you can call there and that's really good for people both in the United States and internationally that's a wonderful uh, option to have and post your question, and then they will address and find out the information for you. Or you can call them at 1-800-422-6237. So that's a way to get your questions answered. That might be medical questions in addition to your healthcare team. Now, in addition to that, if any of you are wanting to have more help from Cancer Care, then you would simply call us at Cancer Care. Um, uh, I think Ms. Lewis reviewed all of those options with you, and you can call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, most importantly, as we are about to conclude the program, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone in coping with metastatic breast cancer or coping with cancer in general. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support here at Cancer Care. And you also not only have Cancer Care, but many other resources as well that are um, that you'll be getting. We will be sending all of you an evaluation form, and we will ask you all, of course, to complete that evaluation form um, at the conclusion of you know today's program, that's really um important because we love your feedback because it helps us to be sure that we are um accomplishing what you need um, in terms of your learning needs and that you get all the information that you need um to actually um, best um, you know cope with with cancer. So basically, um you will be getting an evaluation form. we ask you to complete that. Um, but remember that there are lots of resources for you, and there's simply a phone call away or a web visit away, and we're here for you. Um, I do want to actually, again, just acknowledge our our support of today's program because the the program would not be possible without that support. So I do want to, again, thank AbbVie, um, Cascadian Therapeutics, iSci, Inc., Syndex Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and a contribution from Lilly. I really want to thank them all for supporting the program and also for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. We do have two programs coming up that might be of interest to all of you, and you'll be getting information about them. One is called Mind-Body Techniques to Cope with the Stresses of Cancer, and that's on Wednesday, November 15th um, from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we have another one that's late-breaking just come out. It's called Advances in the Treatment of HER2-Positive Breast Cancer, so that may apply to some of you on the call today. And that program is on Wednesday, November 8th, and it's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So We hope that you'll take advantage of those programs if you haven't already. Um, Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.